0: Hello and welcome to CINITY's first ever global virtual summit. A summit is by definition a forum for us to convene in order to dialogue and share regarding a common cause. For this summit, we have brought together industry leaders, experts, and practitioners to discuss the role of data in the context of business, hence our theme, where business and data converge. I am Leonard McGanzer, Chief Customer Officer at CINITY. At CINITY, we solve complex data challenges in order to keep supply chains running, improve cash liquidity or margins, meet compliance demands, and more. We are pleased to showcase a group of industry and business leaders from Unilever, SAP, Sensing, and some of our own Synity experts to share and exchange their insights on data transformations, CDO perspectives, context computing, data management, why purpose matters, and even roundtables where you can help set the agenda.
1: Next up, we have a special appearance from Jeff Jonas, the Chief Scientist and CEO of Sensing, who specialise in identity resolution. A few words around Jeff. Jeff has been named by National Geographic as the Wizard of Big Data. An IBM Fellow and a serial entrepreneur, he has an amazing personal story that you will hear towards the end of his session. And we here at Cinity are proud to present to you one of the five humans on Earth who have completed every Ironman. Jeff will share his insights on context computing. The theme of this virtual summit is when business and data converge. At Synity, we believe that putting data in the context of business is the key to success. And to you, Jeff.
2: Hi, I'm Jeff Jonas, the CEO of Sensing, and I'm excited to have a chance to give you guys a keynote today, albeit remote. A quick background about me is I founded a company called Systems Research and Development in the early 80s. I moved it to Vegas in the early 90s. And one of the systems we built happened to be used to help bring down the MIT card counting. So if you uh, read the book, Bring Down the House or saw the movie 21, uh, my team and I had our hands in uh, helping bring it into their uh, run on Vegas and other casinos. In 2001, we took some funding from Incutel, the venture capital arm for the CIA, and in 2003, we took another round of funding from IQtel and Reed Elsevier, the uh, parent company of LexisNexis. In 2005, uh, IBM bought my SRD company, and today, IBM marks a product called Identity Insight, which was formerly called NoRA when we had it at, at SRD. And uh, its focus is on financial services and government. While at IBM, I was named an IBM fellow, which is was quite proud of, and I was the chief scientist of context computing. In 2009, while still at IBM, I started a skunkworks project codenamed G2, and ultimately, that's what I spun out of IBM into sensing. So I want you to imagine this. It's right after 9-11. I happened to be at one of these three-letter government agencies in the Washington, D.C. area, and I was talking to a counterterrorism intelligence analyst, and I asked this analyst, what do you wish you could do uh, if you could do anything? And she thinks about it for a minute. She looks at me and says, I wish I could get answers to my questions faster. You know, it really struck me as funny. I thought about it for a second. I said, yeah, but what if the question you asked today is not a great question today because there's some piece of data that hasn't arrived yet. What if the piece of data you need arrives next week? What about that? She looked at me slightly defeated and goes, that could happen. I think about it for a minute and then I just look at her and I say, "But." but what are the chances you can ask every question every day? She thinks about that and then utterly defeated looks at me and says, you know, I can't. I'm telling you, I should have sat there thinking we're all going to die. But on a more practical level, this phrase popped into my head. It's a future where you want the data to find the data and the things that are relevant to find you. It's about machines helping focus human attention. Of course, this is easier said than done. And, And why is we've got data growing at one curve called the available observation space and then we've got our ability to make sense of it is is really at least in my opinion has been kind of flattening out and it's the gap is widening we're not keeping up with our ability to make sense of what's been collected i think about it like enterprise amnesia it's like the organization's got the blue puzzle piece in this hand and the yellow puzzle piece in this hand and they're actually because they don't realize they're related they're, they're hiring people at facility two after they just finished firing them from facility one. Or the bank tosses a money lender, launderer out of Hong Kong and they turn right back up and get a brand new bank account with a different passport and a slightly different name in India. Well, the question is why? Why is this curve flattening out? And I did a blog post about this quite some time ago called Algorithms at Dead End. You can't squeeze knowledge out of a pixel. Now, what do I mean by that? I want you to imagine a pixel is kind of like just having one puzzle piece. In this case, it's just a one piece of data with one email address. Think about it. You could use an unlimited amount of compute, time, and energy. Unlimited. And what is your ability to make sense of this one data point, whether it's an opportunity or a risk? And, and you can't. And the reason is, is it lacks context. So when I say context, I mean this specific definition, better understanding something by taking into account the things around it. When you see the word bad in a sentence, you look at the words around it to know what kind of bad it is. When I think about information in context, I think of that one puzzle piece and how it relates to other data that's already been observed. And I think about new data as it arrives coming in. And then of course, as more data arrives, more context accumulates. So context accumulation is this incremental process of integrating new observations with previous observations. It turns out the puzzle metaphor holds up so well. I study the way people put puzzles together today and it inspires me on the algorithm that my team and I are building today. Um, So imagine this, you have a giant pile of puzzle pieces there in the room with you wherever you are. It's got different sizes, different shapes, different colors. Um, but you don't have any boxes at hand. You don't don't know whether it's one puzzle or 15 puzzles or 1,500. As you look at the pile, you realize there's some duplicates. There's some missing pieces. Some pieces are incomplete. Some have errors. And in fact, you are told some pieces are even professionally fabricated lies. Until you start bringing these pieces to the table to see how they relate to each other, it's nearly impossible to assess the overall scene. I went and bought these four puzzles. I then hid 10% from the first puzzle. I hid one third from the second. I I hid 50% of the third puzzle and I kept a few random pieces from the fourth. And then because I have a dark side, I bought a copy of the first puzzle and I kept 10% of those pieces. These were duplicates. And I made a pile of all of these remaining pieces on the kitchen table at my girlfriend's house in Santa Monica. We were having a barbecue. Now, Uh, I see uh, my girl's friend's son and the three cousins, but uh, I also look at it another way and think of this as four parallel processing pipelines. Now, mind you, I didn't tell them anything, but they did just get started. And here is their first discovery. This is the first time two puzzle pieces found each other. And here we can see that more data is finding more data. Here, I can see this duplicate. At this point, they don't even know duplicates are possible until they find this piece and stack it up on top of the prior. But nonetheless, the puzzles begin to take form. 22 minutes in, one of them blurted out, hey, this one's a duplicate. 35 minutes, and they, they realized some pieces are missing. 37 minutes, and it said, looks like a bunch of hillbillies on a porch. And a few minutes later, they were able to revise their understanding as more context accumulated. And they clarified and said, it's hillbillies playing guitars sitting on a porch near a barber sign and a banjo. And this is all they could see. Under the bowl, you can see a little some pieces of the barbershop sign. Underneath there, you can see a guitar, further down some boots, and a banjo to the right. This, mind you, was one of the puzzles that I had denied them 50% of the observation space. 47 minutes in, they realized that no matter how much more um, sky, the green piece, uh, the blue pieces, and how much more grass, the green pieces, that they added to the puzzle, It wasn't helping them understand the overall scene, so they self-optimized and moved them off. Two hours in, because it was so challenging, the the oldest at the time, a 17-year-old girl, said, let's switch size and see if we can make sense of this from different perspectives. I thought, that's smart. Two hours and 10 minutes in, wait, there are three, no, four puzzles. And a few minutes later, um, they just said, hey, I think you threw in a, a few random pieces. And it wasn't long after that, One of the boys just looked at me and just said, you're evil. And I gotta tell you, it was really a high point for me. This was the puzzle that only had 10% missing. Now I've done other experiments where it doesn't have the edges and the experience is the same. Now I just wanna talk about how this works because how context accumulates in context computing systems and how it works when you or your family put the puzzle together at home are so close to the same. You grab the next piece of data or the next puzzle piece out of the box and you look over how it relates to the pieces you've already seen. You have one of three choices. It's either doesn't really associate with anything, so you just leave it by itself, or you put it near other pieces that it's similar to, like putting all the red, white pieces near each other, or you figure out right where it goes and you connect it. But you only connect pieces when you're sure. You favor the false negative. Um, When's the last time you were trying to put a puzzle together and then you said to yourself, it doesn't fit in here so good. But with a hammer and some glue, I can get this little sucker in there. You just don't do that. New observations sometimes reverse earlier assertions. You have thought the two pieces fit together, but later as more pieces emerge, you come to question the earlier decision. And in fact, you go, oh, now that I see this, then you'll disconnect them. Some observations produce novel discoveries. You may have thought these two groups of the puzzle didn't have anything to do with each other. But later when you found one puzzle piece that was just blades of grass, it was the piece that allowed you to connect the two more broad uh, clusters of puzzle pieces and pull them together. Now this part I find most fascinating. As the working space expands, your computational effort increases. If the puzzle that you're putting together is only supposed to be this big, can you put it together on a table this big? And the answer is no. It expands, it puffs out because you end up with so much uncertainty. But as you continue to put the puzzle together, it becomes a tipping point. And pretty soon the puzzle pieces start to collapse. And then it starts to get faster and faster as you put the puzzle together. I've seen this in a billion record system where over time it was getting slower and slower, as there were more pieces. But as more pieces were related to each other, connected much like a puzzle, the more efficient it became computationally to ingest the next piece. It was really an interesting. Uh, discovery. And so here's how it really looks. On the left side is a new piece of data. It's a new observation. It might be somebody that just, you're onboarding as a new customer. It might be a video camera in the parking lot. And new observations are only useful if you can extract features from them. So as a video camera in the parking lot, maybe you need a license plate reader. The features that get extracted from observations get used to assemble how pieces relate to each other. So when you're computing context, It takes that inbound observation and figures out how it fits into what was previously seen. And what you end up with then is that original observation and context. It's the immediate surrounding pieces, not the distant pieces that are not very particular to it. That's kind of like the word bat in the center there with all the other words bat around it. And from information and context is really where you're able to do the best decisions. Now I'll tell you, all too often, I see people trying to figure out how to make decisions on single individual observations. And you wonder why they have so many false positives or so many false negatives. And the problem is, is they're not combining it with more adjacent data, bringing it more into context for better decisions. So from the left to the middle is how data finds data. And from the middle, the observation of context to, to reaction is where relevance finds you. Now, about context computing for a moment, it turns out one of the most fundamental forms of context is entity resolution. In fact, it's my area of obsession. even you know, is it three cases of COVID 19 in three cities or is it one case reported three times? If you can't count how many unique customers you have or patients or vendors, you can't very well estimate direction and speed. It makes prediction virtually impossible about what are they going to buy next or what or should they be able to give this, get this refund or not if you can't actually understand who is who. I've defined entity resolution this way. It's recognizing when two observations relate to the same entity despite having been described differently. Look at all of the differences in those two records. Conversely, recognizing when two observations do not relate to the same entity despite having been described similarly. This junior record here compared to the senior record there. In this case, there's only one letter off. Isn't that interesting that you can be that confident that the first two records are the same, even though they're so different? And then you have one letter off between the second and third record, and you know with some confidence they're different. And the third and final aspect is the ability to remember the relationships between these entities. I'm going to give you a few more examples of where entity resolution Uh, has played roles, and you're going to come to realize, I hope it's at the center of every organization that has either customers, employees, and or vendors, plus or minus bad guys. Uh, We built a system called ERIC. It used uh, the G2 technology that we invented while at IBM that's now sitting inside Sensing, and we helped the ERIC organization deploy this in 2012. Today, it runs over half of America's voter registration, 350 million records, 28 states, and it helps make recommendations to election offices, and it tells them that their voters have moved to another state. If anybody watching this has ever moved from state to state, question, did you remember to unregister? Well, don't you think that's a little odd? Do you realize the state that you left still has you on their voter roll? Like this is how you end up with states that more, more people are registered to vote than even live there, because people forget to unregister. ERIC helps do that for both blue states and red states and also helps identify states that have achieved new potential voters that have arrived, for example they're in DMV, but haven't registered. That's an entity resolution problem. That entire system by the way until recently was run by one person in the IT department. Uh, The government of Columbia had a consultant on a laptop use entity resolution to find 600,000 fake students that have saved them 300 million dollars and I worked on this project myself with, around the Malacca Strait, helping the Singapore government uh, entity resolve people, companies, and vessels to figure out which vessels on any given day were the most interesting. Again, this is all part of context computing. It's about weeding data together from different sources to uh, make better decisions in enterprises. It really comes into kind of four general use cases. One is bad guy hunting, like trying to detect and preempt bad actors, whether they're on a watch list because you're looking for them, or they're not even on a watch list yet. There's risk analysis where you're just trying to understand who's who and who's related to who to figure out, you know, uh, you know, how much of a loan that they're worth giving, or is it the right employee to hire? There's also marketing use cases where you're trying to improve outcomes, eliminate duplicates, get 360 degree views, and get visibility into customer networks to get network value. And there's a bunch of miscellaneous use. If you're trying to do projects in graph databases, I mean, is it five billion the kids or is it one? Uh, there's work to, do. Uh, uh, roles that energy resolution plays to improve machine learning models and improve privacy compliance that affects all these industries because all of these have, uh, employees and customers and prospects, uh, plus or minus some bad guys and vendors. Okay. So now I'm going to pull way back for a second. And what we're really talking about here is better connecting data. It's the whole notion of context computing and getting more context. And now a big picture. I'm talking about how big a picture? I'm talking about the arc of humanity. What would I possibly mean by that? I wanted you to think back for a minute about just recorded data. Well, maybe the first kind of recorded data was cave art. Okay, there wasn't much of that. And maybe the next kind of recorded data was hieroglyphics. Okay, there was a bit more of that. Then came scrolls and maps. And then with the printing press comes books. And then comes the digital age. Kaboom. Now, as all this data is recorded, all these little blue dots are this notion of things that have been discovered by connected data. This is the discovery of penicillin and solar power. And every now and then, something that's been missing discovery, it's been recorded, it's above the line, but it gets discovered and then moves below the line an example of this that's happened in recent years is researchers studying termite mounds in Africa got connected with people building skyscrapers, working on more energy-efficient building. These groups and these researchers found each other, and now they collaborate. And now there's current research projects and around this discovery that's helping make greener buildings from this termite research. Well, the question is, what else occurs above the line that we're missing? I mean, with data already collected, maybe there's faster vaccine development or uh, solutions to global hunger, which is really gonna be much more needed over coming months and years. And maybe if we better harness the current data that we've already collected, We could do a better job uh, preventing information warfare where uh, faraway nations are doing their best to influence countries, its population, its elections. But those are just three ideas. I'll tell you there's millions of discoveries that are yet to be found just connecting the data we've already collected. Just imagine harnessing the seemingly unrelated Revealing the unknown, significantly advancing mankind's knowledge. This really excites me. I, I think entity resolution has a role to play in this, but there are so many other technologies, and it's going to be a concert of instruments, uh, technologies, and processes, and people that are going to make uh, these kinds of gains possible. You know, but what about this week and next? Uh, and what are we doing? And, you know, in the innovation category, what excites me really the most is uh, more real-time context for better outcomes. I mean, that's something that every organization is striving for. At the same time, we need to be more agile than ever. The speed with which we have to uh, maybe pivot left and right in this, new, in this new post-COVID-19 world. And when you do uh, those two well, that makes organizations smarter and faster. And I mean, the goal really is to be smarter and faster than the competitor. Now, whether the competitor is country versus country or bank versus bank or insurance company versus organized crime somewhere else, it's really about just, you know, winning in the marketplace. And then you just have to think, you know, of all that innovation. Well, last year we were investing differently in those things. And today, given the climate, some of the places where these investments have to be prioritized, I mean, for sure, enabling the remote worker when you can. After that, what I'm seeing is really fast ROI projects with low execution risk, at least in the entity resolution space, my obsession, I mean, if you're not, if you're not sub nine month ROI, it's not really uh, the right investment. Uh, and I think that's gonna hold true for lots of other technology. Then there's security, because uh, it's odd, but more than ever, both private and public sector, uh, ransomware attacks, cyber attacks are really on a rise. And then fraud, waste and abuse, desperate people do desperate things. And I know that already financial institutions, for example, and uh, healthcare are, are seeing uh, higher increases of, um, of bad actors trying to, you know, let's just say steal. So look, in closing, in the past, lowering headcount and operational costs, while innovating and mitigating risk, all with same your ROI was somewhat of a holy grail. And I'll just tell you, I think it's more possible than ever. Uh, to deploy these really high-value, fast ROI systems with less, less execution risk. Uh, I blog on Medium, and uh, I blog so I don't have to repeat myself. And, and look, uh, Zarina asked me to share a little bit about my journey, so I threw a few extra charts in there, a bonus. Um, so it's on the personal side. But when I was 23 years old, I was in a test drive in a BMW and the salesman was showing off the car, ran off the road and I broke my neck at C2 right where Christopher Reeves did. And, uh, yeah, so I was a full quadriplegic. No one knew if I would ever walk again. Uh, I walk now. I, I, I uh, pretty normal, but it was a tricky It was, it was a tricky time in my life. Uh, the big takeaway from a near death, which many people have had is since then, every day is an extra day, and sometimes I forget that, but that was the biggest takeaway. I, I ended up uh, doing a marathon with my mother when I was 31. She beat me, and from there I, I went on and started doing Ironman triathlons, and in um, August of 2014, I became one of, one of three people to have done every Ironman in the world. Uh, over the last few years, a few more entered joined the club, uh, today I'm one of five people that've done every Ironman in the world. There's my friend Lewis in Mexico, uh, John and Elizabeth in Canada, Holger in Germany, and I. Uh, I represent America, so that's been somewhat fun. You, I'm, you know, I'm, you can say I'm proud of that, but I'm I'm more I'm most proud of becoming an IBM Fellow. When I was 20 years old, my first software company. I, I dropped out of high school when I was like 17. So that was the last real education that I've had. I started a software company because that was my passion. But that company went bankrupt when I was 20. I started SRD when I was in the backseat of my car. And uh, to have that kind of an educational background to become an IBM fellow is just unheard of. So I really owe it to, to IBM for a, a great a great part of my journey. As you can tell, I've become most passionate about entity resolution only because so many people struggle with it. It's Literally, armies of PhDs work on it. You have to have millions of dollars to pay for the good stuff. And I don't think that's fair anymore. So, I literally want pet store owners with duplicates on their Christmas mailing list to be able to just download it for free and use it. Uh, anyway, so I'm trying to democratize that. I'm super accessible. I'm Jeff at Sensing. And uh, I answer every email I get. I get emails from time to time from students in Brazil asking for thesis advice, and I help. So, whether you want to talk about Sensing or talk about the arc of mankind, and better connecting data to find, you know, gears to cancer. I'm interested in talking about that too. Uh, And I'd like to uh, thank uh, to for having me in the keynote for you today. Thanks.
1: Thank you, Jeff, for an amazing session, sharing your insights, personal story, and advice. Up next is Rex, Synity's Chief Strategy and Technology Officer.